0: Father, as we come to your word we want to ask it by your holy spirit you cause us to see things to understand things to apply things we've never never seen before and thank you that this one word is applied by your holy spirit to hearts all over this room in a hundred different ways so father thank you for your speaking through your word in jesus name amen well it's good to see you today we could be out playing but you're in the house with god's people good amen we're glad that you're here we're going to be looking in psalm 73 want to encourage you to turn there it's right after psalm 72 it's easy to find 72 74 right in the middle 73 and um, if you have your you version app you can look in there and there's a bible in the, the chair in front of you one of them uh, help that'll help psalm 73 there are 150 Psalms. 50 of them, we do not know who wrote them. 72 of them were written by David. And then the next highest number of known authorship is this dude who wrote 73. And we're going to start in verse point 0.5, verse one half. We're going to look at the header of the chapter that says, A Psalm of who? This guy wrote 12 of the Psalms asaph was an amazing man he was one of three worship leaders that david set in place at the tabernacle that he had in the courtyard of his own palace apparently had 24 hour a day worship going on seven days a week upwards of 30 years he had three worship leaders he man well you're gonna dig these names okay you got he man we knew somebody who named their son Jeduthun, and asaph asaph and his descendants were involved in every revival in the history of Israel, and four, five, six hundred years later, after this guy's dead, his sons of Asaph are still involved in worship. Even in Nehemiah, all the way at the end, at the restoration, the sons of Asaph are still listed as being a major part of the worship of Israel. Now look, I'm a direct descendant of John Rolfe and Pocahontas. Now, do you know what that'll get me at Denny's? With a buck 50 it it'll get me a half a cup of coffee. Nobody cares. Half of this room's probably related to them. You know, how many people have ever asked me how to plant tobacco? Nobody. You know who's ever in- introduced me to the queen? Nobody. Just about the exact same amount of distance from those ancestors of mine to Asaph and the sons of Asaph, they were still involved in worship. This man was an amazing man. And these three, it would be kind of like having Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, and Darlene Sheck all in charge of worship together. So he starts in Psalm 73.1. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Let's start with what we know. That's what Asaph is saying. Let's start, truly, truly, we know that God is good to Israel. Moses, when he was praying on the mountain, was overwhelmed by the presence of God. He prayed in Exodus chapter 33, please show me your glory. And the father answered, God answered and said, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you and and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Folks, the glory of God is his goodness, his goodness is his glory. And Asaph is letting us know, truly God is good to Israel. David tells us in Psalm 119 verse 68, you are good and everything you do is good. Teach me your statutes. And friends, until we recognize the eternal goodness of God and the eternal goodness of everything that he does, we will never be able to rightly and fully understand his word. As long as we're thinking he's mad at me, he's out to get me, he's just waiting for me to show up so he can whack me a good one, we're not going to understand his word. And Asaph says, truly, God is good to Israel, and especially we see that we know that he's good to those who are pure in heart. And then verse 2, but as for me. Now we have a lot of but as for me's in the Bible. What's the most famous, most popular but as for me verse you can think of? But as for me and my house, we will serve. Joshua 24, 15. There are a lot of but as for me's. Psalm 26, 1, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Micah 3, but as for me, I I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. Micah 7. I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the Lord of my salvation, and God will hear me. There are a lot of good, but as for me's. And here's one of the things that I really like about the Bible, is his extreme honesty. But as for me, Asaph, the worship leader, the popular one, the well-known one, the one who everyone looks to, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Is it okay for the preacher to be frustrated with God? Better be, <laughs> Better be <laughs> good. Thank you. Is it is it okay for the asaps of this life to express doubt? After her death, Mother Teresa's diaries, some of her writings were found and put out, and in them she expressed some doubt. And boy, the news media loved that. They chewed her up for that. How can the one who's supposed to be teaching such certainty, the paragon of certainty, express doubt? But friends, it is as impossible to have faith without doubt as it is to have courage without fear. It is as impossible to have faith without doubt as it is to have courage without fear. And there are a lot of people who don't believe. I get it. Okay, okay. I can can understand it. And Asaph is dealing with some very real issues that have brought up some honest doubts. And if we cannot be honest with our doubts, how are we ever going to increase in our faith? They call him Doubting Thomas. (coughs) And when Jesus said, (coughs) put your hand in my side, put your hand in the palm of my hand, what did Thomas do? It never says that he touched Jesus. It never says that he put his hand there. What it does say is that he became the first to confess that Jesus is Lord in John chapter 20 when it says, my Lord and my God. We call him Doubting Thomas, but he's the first to confess Jesus is Lord. (laughs) And let's be honest, how many times have you ever wondered if it's worth the pain? If real life transformation is worth the difficulty. I'm going through all this stuff, and then when I die, I wake up dead after all. <laughs> Friends, Jesus is not afraid of your questions if you're not afraid of his answers. And again, let's be honest. How many times have you looked at the lives of those around you who do not believe in Jesus and thought, they have it easier than I do? They have it a lot better off than I do, and they don't even know Jesus. Have you ever been envious of the arrogant when you saw the prosperity of the wicked? If you have, then you can find yourself in this chapter. Have you ever told me, God, if you gave me, if you gave me that money, I would, I would serve the kingdom with it. If you gave me that swimming pool, I would use it as a witnessing tool. I would give the scraps of my filet mignon to the poor. God, if you just gave, if you just gave me what those terrible people over there have, I would show them how to use it rightly. Have you ever equated ease of life with evidence of God's favor? If God favors me, then I have an easy life. And then you look at lost folks who have an easy life, and you go, well, my life's not as easy as theirs. Maybe God's not favoring me after all. If we're going to equate ease of life with God's favor, do we really have the gospel in mind here? Because Asaph is saying, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I don't get it. I'm suffering here, and it has caused my feet to almost stumble and my steps to almost slip. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Here's some of their, the ease they have. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's back when it was cool to be fat. <laughs> That's like the Renaissance paintings. You know, they have all the plump little people there. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Here's the result of it. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And now, because because it seems like everything is at ease around them, here's what they do. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth make fun of those around them and even threaten oppression they're making fun they make life hard for the nice guys and we look at that and go wait a minute god i'm on your side what why aren't you why aren't you stepping in here the question is do they really have everything better do they really now look this is uh, as with much poetic literature David, Asaph, I'm sorry, is speaking in exaggerated terms. They don't have everything better. They stubbed their toe. Their wife moved their coffee table last night, and they stubbed their toe on it in the middle of the night. Not everything is better, but it sure feels that way. Don't get too frustrated with folks who are speaking in exaggerations because it's usually a pretty good indication of their frustration level. But notice the primary pronoun in this passage so far. Up to this point, it has been third-person plural, they and their. Twelve times in six verses. And Asaph has his gaze outward, and as long as he does, it's wearing him out. Look at what he says there in verse 10. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Now, there's controversy over the translation of this verse. There are some who say that this is talking about God's people turn look at the wicked and say, well, maybe there's no fault in them after all. There are a few who are saying that maybe, maybe sin's all right. Maybe it's not all that bad. And certainly we have plenty of that in our day. But friends, when the church minimizes sin in deference to those around them, the church has their focus in the wrong place. But what this is more likely talking about is that the arrogant have surrounded themselves with other folks who are just as arrogant as they are. And you're referring to those people who are in agreement with them who, while, well, look there in verse 9, they set their mouths against their heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. Here's what they say. Look in verse 11. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They claim that God's blind, He's ignorant. Therefore, they can do as they please because God is either unable or unwilling to do anything about it. They have surrounded themselves with people who agree with everything they agree with. And friends, when all of the voices around you agree with everything you have to say, you need some more voices around you. That great theologian of the faith, my daughter-in-law Natalie, said, I don't know where she got it, but I got it from her, so Natalie gets credit for it. If your God hates all the same people you hate, you have created an idol. Now, that's a good line, isn't it? Well, let's add a corollary to that. If your friends all have the same complaint about God that you have, you've created a religion. And here's his conclusion of the assessment of the wicked there in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now he turns to his personal frustrations. He's made the observations of the ungodly, and now here's how he feels about it. Look there in verse thirteen: "All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence." You ever said that one? What have I done this for? What have I? What have I paid this price for? These are two of the things that are listed in Psalm twenty-four as requirements to make it. Who shall ascend to the mount of the Lord? Who will come for his holy assembly? Those, Psalm 24, 3 and 4, who have clean hands and pure heart. And he just said, in vain, in vain, I have done these two things. I'm getting nothing out of it. Or this is a sad state to be in. Have you ever wondered what's the point? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus assured, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, they will see God. Listen, not only in the certainty of eternity, but when you're driving down the road looking at creation. When you recognize the provision that only he can provide, because he's the one who gave you the ability to do what it is you're doing. You didn't come by that. You didn't produce that yourself. He's the one who gave you that strength, that ability to retain knowledge. He's the one who gave. And when we recognize, wow, holy cow, God's the one who's doing this. He's the one who's opening these doors and we step into those opportunities. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they're going to see that God's the one doing this. But it's easy to make the mistake that right conduct assures blessing. If I act right, then I deserve to be treated right. If I have good conduct, then it will produce good results. Quote another great theologian of the faith, Tina Pelton. She said, I mean, you gotta listen to these people. You gotta write some of this stuff down. It's good. It's easy to listen. It's easy to mistake good conduct for Christ likeness and to allow even good conduct to become an idol in our lives. I try to be a good person. I try to do right. I try to be good. Friend good schmood. You don't go to heaven because you're good. Don't go to hell because you're bad. Our sin has created a wall between us and God, and the only way to deal with that wall that has to be taken down is through Jesus. It's not about good or bad. It's that wall. And Jesus took that wall down on Calvary, and now all that remains is Jesus. Do you know Jesus Christ? It's not a matter of how good we are. And how easy is it, even as Christians, to put too high a premium on outward show, and to make goodness into an idol. How easy is it as parents to demand right conduct from our children rather than to deal with the heart behind that conduct? If we can just get them to stop doing that, then we've succeeded. Johnny's running around the house, and Mom tells Johnny, Go sit in the corner. Pat it. Johnny goes and sits in the corner. He said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm running on the inside. Did she correct his conduct? Did she correct his conduct? Did she correct his heart? Ah. And friends, the Word of God does not stop with our outward actions, but it goes directly to the heart of the matter. When in Hebrews 4.12 it says it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, boy, we're getting into some tight spaces now. Joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, down between the thoughts and intents, not only what the thought is, but why I thought it. The Word of God is able to discern, to separate between those two, not only what I did, but why I did it. The very intentions of the heart. And friends, the goal, listen, the goal is not good behavior. The goal is Christ-likeness. And that is something that cannot be had apart from Christ and the cross. And that's what Asaph is struggling with here. He just didn't have the verbiage of cross yet. And lost people can act good. Pharisees, man, Pharisees can act good. But Jesus said they're just white and sepulchers full of dead men. They look good on the outside, but on the inside they're dead. You cannot out good a Pharisee. Friends, real-life transformation is not limited to change of conduct. Real-life transformation is about the changing of the source of our conduct. It is the change of who we are into who he is. But Asaph's frustrated. Look at why he's frustrated. Look there in verse 14. All the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now, look at that. Up in verse 5, it says, they're not stricken. Pagans aren't stricken like the rest of mankind. But verse 14 says, I'm stricken. Now, that kind of sounds anonymous. That kind of sounds happenstance. That sounds kind of accidental. It's a freak accident. You get struck by lightning, right? Catastrophe strikes. All these weird things happen. It's just something weird that doesn't seem to happen to the wicked, but it happens to me. And not only that, look there in verse 14. But I'm rebuked every morning. Now, look, stricken can be an accident. Rebuke is on purpose. What are you mad at me for? I'm doing everything right. was afflicting Asaph with the difficulties God was easy on the wicked they're not stricken but he's hard on Asaph I deserve better than this I've tried so hard to be good I haven't cheated on my taxes but I got audited I don't lie at work but they got the promotion after all the things I do for you God it just isn't fair and to quote the great theologian of the faith Karen Brown how do you like my quotes for the day her statement was, oh, oh, he never said he is fair. He said he's good. And that's what Asaph is having difficulty with. Surely he's good. Truly he's good to Israel. But as for me, and how many of us have been frustrated that God seems to treat better people who do not know him better than he treats people who do know him? And my answer to that would be, Yeah? You see who ended up on the cross? (laughs) It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the traitor. It wasn't the bad guys. It's the one who was thundered from heaven in Matthew chapter 3. This is my beloved son. Look at what he says. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus had performed a miracle, before he had preached a sermon, before he had led anybody to himself, The Father says, He's beloved, and I'm pleased with Him. And He's the one who ended up on the cross. How unfair is that? And from the cross, He's the one who said, the ones that are doing this to me, God, please forgive them. Friends, it's the way of the cross. And Christ's likeness, when Jesus said, In John chapter 12, where I am, there will my servant be also. He did not exclude the cross. He stated very clearly, Matthew chapter 16, if anybody wants to come after me, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And if the cross is the place where the one he loved first ended up, How in the world do we think we will end up anywhere else? Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 15, I die every now and then. What? I died when I got saved years ago. What does he say? I die every day. And you get mad at God because it's doubtful. W. Tozer said it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. My mind says oh that doesn't sound very fair to me. Or we can accept the fact that this is just the way of God across all ages with all his people. Because it's the way of the cross. I think it was Robert Murray McShane who said God uses no man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. No I'm sorry he said He said, if if this is the way God treats his friends, I would hate to be his enemy. And Teresa of Avila said, if this is the way God treats his friends, no wonder he has so few of them. But friends, this is the way of God with all of his people through all ages. Find me somebody in the Bible who did not suffer. Jesus told Ananias concerning Saul in Acts chapter 9, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, now, look, you got in the same passage chosen and suffer those don't Those don't go together for me right you know you' you've seen uh, fiddler on the roof. I know that you we are your chosen people. Could you please just for a little while choose someone else if there's going to be if there's going to be glory in this thing, I'd rather have one of those little gold discs you know that follow you around like in the medieval paintings, you know. Told Peter, When you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Philippians one twenty nine, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The amplified version says, Privilege. See, it's amplified. You see what I did there? <laughs> Thank you the privilege to suffer for him. We go, well, I don't want to be on the cross. Friends, this is the way. This is the way of Christ. If we are going to experience real-life transformation, it is going to be by way of the cross. And now look, we don't go looking for suffering. We don't go looking for difficulty any more than you go breaking your own bones because they're stronger where they're knit together than where they're not. No, we don't go looking for suffering, but when it comes, we don't go running from it either. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us three responses to suffering. Verse 5 has two of them. The first one is, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't take it lightly. Ah, that's no big deal. Oh, just no big. No, God's trying to speak to you about something. Let's pay attention. The second one is, don't be weary when reproved by him. Don't look at it and say, I can't take any more. It's wearing me out. I'm leaving. I'm done. Don't do that. But the third response is in verse, th- th- verse 7 when it says, endure hardship as discipline. Endure it light of it don't run from it endure it stick with it don't let it go we can scream but i've done everything right conduct is not the measure of maturity christ likeness is and when he's faced with this dilemma look there in verse 15 he wants to talk with someone if i had said if if i had said i will speak thus I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's in a real dilemma because he doesn't want to do damage to God's people. If I had talked about this, I would have caused someone else to stumble. But look in verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. This is killing me here. What am I going to do with this? Spurgeon said, poor Asaph. He questions the value of holiness when its wages are paid in the coin of affliction. Who am I going to talk to? Here's what he does. Look in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Who is Asaph frustrated with here? Who is Asaph frustrated? He's frustrated with God. Why are you allowing these things? He's frustrated with God. So who does he go talk to? If you're angry with me and you want to stay angry with me, there are at least two people you should not talk to. Okay? If you're angry at me and you want to stay angry at me, don't come talking to me, and don't talk to anybody that likes me. Okay, Here's what you do. If you want to stay angry at me, you go talk to somebody who doesn't like me, and I can give you a long list. Somebody I've done something stupid to, I can give you a longer list. And be sure they haven't come and talked to me either because I might have apologized to them, and that's going to ruin your whole conversation. If you're mad at somebody, you want to stay as far away from and talk to everybody else that's mad at them as virtually possible, especially if they're mad at them for the same reason you're mad at them. That way you can all be in agreement together. Don't talk to anybody who might have a different opinion or experience. And friends, if you're mad at God and you want to stay mad at God, same holds true. But here's his invitation. if If you want to understand, he said... He said, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to go, what in the world? What, what, where is this thing? And then he said, if you search for me, I will be found by you. He's going to play hide and seek with you and leave his toes sticking out of the closet door every time because he wants to be found by us, but he wants to engage with us. He invites us to engage with him. He's the one in Isaiah 1 who said, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's reason this thing. That means to be reciprocal, to argue in the classical sense. You present your argument, I'll present it. Let's talk this thing through. And in verses 13 through 17, As long as Asaph is frustrated with God, the primary pronoun is I. (laughs) I. Friends, here's his conclusion. Here's his conclusion after getting a 30,000-foot view, spending some time with the Father. Here's what he said. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And now he has God's perspective, and the primary pronoun is you. God's perspective has helped him realize Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Asaph has a confession to make. Look at what it says there in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. When my soul was embittered, that word embittered means pungent. It means to taste sour, literally fermented. Have you ever had a sour attitude toward God? Have you ever ever just said, I'm going to teach God a thing or two? (laughs) I'm not teaching Sunday school anymore. I'm not reading my Bible. I'll teach Jesus a thing. That's what he's talking about. And if you've ever been embittered, if you've ever had a sour attitude toward the Father, we might need to ask ourselves if we're being brutish and ignorant, if there's something that needs to be dealt with in us. And from here to the end, when fellowship is restored, the primary pronouns are you and I. Now he's back in relationship with the Father. And look at what he says. Where is God? In the middle of all of this, listen, This is so profound to me. This is so (laughs) encouraging. Where is God in the middle of all his questions? In the middle of all his distractions, in the middle of all of his frustrations, where is God in the middle of this? Look what it says there in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. God has never left him. God has never gone anywhere. His presence is real. His guidance is sure, and his love for us is steadfast. He has never left us because he is faithful. Even in the middle of all of Asa's foolishness, God has never left him. Donna had some weird years. I know, it's hard to believe. But she has said she knew that God had never left her. That, that was the anchor that kept her. That was what made it possible, easier to come home. But listen, that God has never left him does not mean we should mistake God's goodness for condoning our conduct, for uninvolvement, for ignorance of our conduct, from detachment, dismissal, distance, or that He doesn't care. That God is still with us in our difficulties and still kind to us in our foolishness does not mean that we're right or that He condones our conduct. All that it means is that He is still good. <laughs> it is His goodness that is calling us to re. It's It impels us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do not despise the riches of His kindness or His forbearance or His patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to bring you to repentance. And we can look at it and say, Well, God never left me in all my sin. It must be okay. He must not mind. No, He minds desperately. He minds deeply. But that he has not left is indication of his faithfulness and his goodness to us, and saying, Come on home, come home. Repent of this thing. you got some bitterness. You've been pricked in heart. You've treated me like a beast. Let's get this thing right. And his invitation is always Zechariah 1 3. Listen to this. And this is what he says Thus declares the Lord of hosts Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He signed it three times. <laughs> Says the Lord of Hosts three times. He must be serious about this thing. It is his invitation to come home. And Asaph has, as a result of talking with God, come to peace. And I wonder how long it took. I wonder if it took a couple of minutes. I wonder if it took a couple of hours, days, weeks, months, years. I don't know. But I like Jacob's resolve in, Genesis 32 when he told the angel, when he told Jesus, I am not going to let you go until you bless me. And the angel blessed him. Do you think, do you think Jacob really beat the angel? Do you think he really out the angel? No. But it was as a result of that wrestling match that Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. A reminder of his encounter with Jesus. And so did Asaph, and so will you. There will always be, look back over your life. Where are those wrestling points? Those times when you wrestled with God, and you know you didn't let him go until he said, okay, here's the blessing. Where are they? You still know where they are. With that, you can be back at them. Look at what he says in verse 25 to the end. But who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Look in verse 28. See that, but for me. He started out, but as for me, and he ends with, but for me, but as for me, my steps had almost stumbled, my feet had almost slipped, and on this one, but for me, it's good to be near God. Boy, there's your comparison, there's your difference. Compare that with verse thirteen: All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He has, he has had an encounter with God. What is it you're struggling with? What are you battling today? Some of you might not register with this sermon at all. That's fine. Just pray for somebody else that it does. But I know there are a lot in this house who are struggling with things. You, it's easy to say, God, what's tha- I don't see the humor in this. What is it that you're battling? Do you feel like you're in a, there's a battle raging around you and all you were doing was making a run to Walmart? <laughs> are you frustrated with how God's running his business? okay to admit that if you are John the Baptist sent his friends to Jesus over in Matthew chapter 11 said are you worth the death I'm about to die and Jesus said you go back and tell John blind see the deaf hear the lame walk the gospel being preached to the poor and oh by the way you'll be happy if you don't get offended at the way I run my business that's what Asaph needed Blessed is he, whosoever is not offended in me. And that there is a blessing for not being offended means it is possible to be offended. And if you find yourself in verse 22 being brutish and ignorant, being a beast toward God, you might want to consider the possibility of being stuck in verse 21, having a soul that's embittered and being pricked in heart. Asa found there's only one he can talk to. And that was, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. So, what are your hurts, questions, fears, desires? What are your frustrations? What do you see going on in your life that you go, well, it wasn't supposed to turn out like this? I would like to give you an opportunity to just talk with God about it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come up to the altar and kneel up here. I'm going to give you an opportunity to kneel at your chair. Just stand, we're going to stand here in a minute and just close your eyes and say, God, we need to talk about some things now make an appointment i'm going to talk with you this afternoon i'm going to talk with you tomorrow i'm going to talk with you sometime soon but god we got to talk and his invitation to you is just as sure as it was to zachariah in chapter one thus says the lord return to me says the lord and i will return to you says the lord <laughs> that's his invitation and friends no matter the difficulty no matter the difficulty no matter the heat of the furnace no matter the strife that you going through, no matter how stricken or rebuked you feel Where's God in all this? Still, you've never left me. Your right hand holds me, and you guide me with your counsel, even in the middle of our foolishness, in the middle of our questions. We've got a song. Let's stand together and we'll look at this. If you want to kneel, let's just take care of some things with God and see what he says to us. Well, the flames are getting hotter as I knew someday they'd be but in the hands of a loving father he is refining me perfectly and the fire consumes not my person it's burning away the impurities it's his way of saying i love you but how strange it is to me oh to be in the furnace once again The heat is so strong And it's so hard to stand I'm thirsty for some water And I'm hungry for a friend I know I'm being tested But it feels like I'm being condemned In the furnace again There's a bitter cup we must all learn to drink from, let it fill you up, let it draw you closer to the sun, and with every taste you'll discover the wonder of, the race he's making you ready for, is a race that you must run. The heat is so strong and so hard to stand. Are you thirsty for some water? Are you hungry for a friend? You know you're being tested. It feels like you're being condemned in the furnace again. Looking deep inside, I know he's in. troubled soul, breaking me up, my pride, while in the Father's hands, the Father understands just how low you can go, I don't know why I'm in this situation, except God has put me Give strength to my salvation
1: and to weaken
0: all my fears. My faith is being tested to be perfect. It takes many years when I think of how He loves me and casts out all of my fears as He's leading me through through the furnace. so strong, so hard to stand, I'm thirsty for some water, and I'm hungry for a friend, I know I'm being tested, but it feels like I'm being condemned, in the furnace again.
1: The journey of faith as Christians is a hard one, often yet it is a good one because God is with us and he will walk with us through whatever we're going through. But also, he promised us to give us others to walk with us as we go through those hard times. And that's why we're here together. And there are probably those around us even this morning that just need our arm around them and need some encouragement. So let's look for an opportunity to be a blessing to one another before we leave this morning. Pastor Robert, myself, another pastor, staff, we're here. Let us help you on your journey as you seek to walk with Christ day by day. Now, let me just give a few announcements here before we leave. These are all things that we get to and can do together, uh, different places in ministry, each of us finding our place. But if you are new to Risen Life, brand new here, and are interested in knowing more about our ministry and how to get involved here, how to get connected, how to be a part of the church family, then next Sunday we have something called Discovering Risen Life, where we serve lunch following this service. Pastor Robert and myself will introduce the ministry and introduce to you several other staff people chance to get connected here at Risen Life. Come next Sunday if you are new to Risen Life following this service. Uh, Saturday the 14th, a couple weekends out, we are having breakfast as a church family at Wheeler Farm. That sounds like a good time. We'll provide pancakes and sausage and you are to sign up for a side dish. So you can do that on my Risen Life. Hope to see you in a couple weeks for that. Uh, Next week is Children's Promotion Sunday. All the children are going to the next class. Woohoo! And the Edge Ministry for 6th and 7th grade is kicking off their new year, um, and that is next Sunday. In fact, the first Wednesday night that the Edge 6th and 7th graders meets is on Wednesday, September 11th. Community group leaders, a lot going on. Community group leaders, if you're one of those or are interested in being one of those, next Sunday following this service, there is a meeting for you. And then here is the exciting news we get to introduce a couple new people to our church family. This is Nora Rose. And Wesley, Dwayne, at least that's their names, and the pictures are coming, hopefully, if not. Anyway, they are born to Caleb and Kelly Townsend, and we are so excited. We want to congratulate them on their new twins. woo yeah. Let's welcome them to the church family. All right, it's been good to be together. Let's be a blessing to one another. We are a church family. Go and be a bright light for Christ this week. Have a great week. comes